Hey, Michael here. Welcome to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. Uh, we pulled off a miracle with today's episode. Uh, we made insurance exciting. Uh, and as somebody who's been in business for a long time and has insurance uh, tied at, for number one as the things I find most boring in business, uh, our guest Tom Gilroy did an amazing job of helping me understand how important uh, insurance is, especially as you're looking at a business to buy uh, and getting that um, to be something in your possession. So um, we talked about everything. How do you find a great insurance broker? What is the what is your insurance broker's role in looking at a new business to buy? Um, how do you be proactive to minimize claims and minimize risk and uh, how you structure a deal and then how you operate it and run it? Uh, the types of insurance you should be looking at and the dangers of not doing this kind of work uh, in terms of risk mitigation and talking to the right insurance partners uh, before and during you on a business. So um, with no further ado, here's Tom. Uh, and we had a great time chatting about this stuff. And right before that, uh, here's a quick word from our sponsors and then we'll be right into the episode. Thanks for being here. Today's sponsor is MicroAcquire, and MicroAcquire is the number one startup acquisition marketplace, uh, and it is simply the most efficient way to buy and sell startups when you're ready to make your next move. So, you know, we've had Andrew, uh, who's the CEO and founder of the company, uh, on the pod before, and he's been great. Um, you know, the cool thing about MicroAcquire is that most of the conventional options for buying and selling your company, especially a tech one, are expensive for founders. Um, so MicroAcquire puts all the cost and flips that the other side around. Um, so they are free and anonymous listings, uh, and they apply a rigorous vetting process um, where actually only 50% of the startups make it on average. Um, they have over 2,000 online businesses listed today at any given time, and a buyer can expect to see a range of startup types uh, that will fit any profile from SaaS to e-commerce to apps and agencies, uh, and of course more. So um, different sizes as well, for anything from $5,000 all the way up to a million. Uh, or more an asking price, really, for buyers of all sizes. So um, founders uh, like MicroAcquire too, um, and they come with the expectation that serious vetted buyers will be showing up uh, in great numbers when they decide to bring their business to market. Um, they've helped hundreds of startups successfully get acquired and facilitated hundreds of millions in closed deal volume. So if you're thinking about buying or selling an online business, uh, then you definitely want to check out MicroAcquire. And uh, thanks to them for sponsoring our episode today, uh, Good Friends of the Pod. So um, looking forward to, to all that and definitely check out microacquire.com. Um, and if you're somebody looking for the right business, um, definitely go visit there and consider upgrading to one of their premium accounts uh, where you pay a bit to start the conversation and see deals and more information than just the other options. So um, thanks again. And uh, here's back to the episode. Uh, Tom, thanks for being here with me today. Yeah, super excited to be here. Um, I have enjoyed the podcast in the past and uh, just happy to speak, dive into a little bit of the secrets and uh, give insight anywhere I can. Yeah, super cool. Well, you're going you're gonna to help expose us to a world that, I mean, at least me as a buyer, uh, like I don't spend enough time on insurance. <laughs> like, it's sort of things like, yeah, I get a lawyer. Yeah, I get like all the other kind of diligence done, but like I'm, I'm excited to dig into this because I feel like I've been putting myself at unnecessary risk and some of the stuff we've done. And hopefully, you'll educate us on that. But um, so, before we get started, maybe give us like a minute overview of your background and how you got to be in the insurance business. I know it's family business, but I think the audience would love to hear kind of your story. And then uh, we'll go start to dive into insurance and the world of kind of MA. Yeah, sure. So, uh, personally, I'm. I'm living in New York City in Brooklyn, New York, originally from 
upstate and uh, haven't been in insurance forever. I actually started in the finance side and loved that area and got to see a lot of things. But ultimately, I was looking for something where you know I could really differentiate, make an impact, uh, and then happened to talk to my dad about the family business. And uh, after a six-month discussion, decided it's something that could really benefit both sides. So I will say I semi-stumbled my way into the insurance area. But with any family business, you can't dip your toe in and say, just kidding. So uh, it was a very thorough decision. And that was about three years ago that I took the plunge back on the insurance side. Yeah. So, okay. So let's say I'm a, uh, I'm a small business buyer. Like, let's say I'm going to buy a Main Street business worth, say, $4 million. And let's say it's a plumbing company. Just for just because everybody loves filming companies, like what what role like before I'm a buyer, you know what is what role does kind of the insurance side of that business play in terms of how I should look at it? Like what what kind of risks am I running if I don't pay attention to insurance? And then like you know what kind of danger, what kind of landmines am I potentially walking into if I if I don't pay attention to kind of your your segment of stuff? Yeah, and just as we talk about for the audience, I think it's important in insurance broker or or insurance agent and the carrier. So we're the broker, which is really that advisor role. And the carrier is the one who actually insures the risk and will pay out, investigate the claim, underwrite, et cetera. So as the insurance advisor, we're really there to navigate on the client's behalf, to help advocate if something comes up and really set strategy to make sure that claims aren't even happening in the first place. So when we talk about a, a business that's about $4 million, things should be more straightforward. But <laughs> you guys know from diligence, you can't just assume that's where things go wrong. So really, is that uh, potential buyer, you need to understand the summary of insurance, um, what policies are in place, is there proper coverage, um, look at the loss runs, has anything come up before, make sure that's repped and that's there. Um, you know, Little things like making sure the policy is rated correctly. And then just understanding the culture of risk and safety. So, you know, depending if it's software to industrial, those could be incredibly quick things, say an hour review uh, up to much further um, if applicable. So, yeah, totally dig it. So, uh, when when I'm looking at a deal, I'm considering doing one like just a very nuanced thing. So, I'm thinking about okay, I've got a company and I'm about to put it under LOI, uh, and then maybe I get it under LOI. And I haven't closed on it yet. Is that when I I need to call somebody to on in your role? Right? Is that is that the moment, or does it happen before that, or does it happen after? Like when when should I have my insurance broker uh, or insurance agent involved in the process? Yeah, some, sometimes we'll get a heads up pre LOI, but it's really once it's signed and there's serious intent to close that we get involved and start to look. We want to make sure that everything else has really come together, and then we're that final piece of diligence. Um, we say that because there's there's a lot that goes into it, and you just don't want to engage um, an insurance broker before you know it's going to close. Some will do that diligence as a one-off fee, and some will incorporate it based on the intent that they're going to be your broker moving forward. So typically, that's why we get to the, the LOI when other things have been straightened out versus right off the bat when the data room gets going. Yeah, so I should look at you probably as one of the advisors that we bring in once we already have a deal and I need to due diligence the right way? Is that kind of how I should think about it? You nailed it. It's that, it's that LOI when things come in. Um, the, the place where we, we can come in and you know, we hate to is after a deal is closed and then we find things uh, because that means you're then fighting with legal disputes, potentially going after the escrow, the holdback or the seller's note. 
And when these deals close, oftentimes the seller is a huge advocate for you in the future as you look at other deals. And so the worst case scenario is that we find things after the fact. It gets gets ugly. You may recoup your money, but you've lost a a key relationship if you're looking at acquisitions in the future. Yeah, dig it. So so you talked about sometimes you get paid, you know, and you'll do this work as a broker just through like the normal kind of client analysis you're going to do anyway. And that's just kind of the process of how y'all would potentially be selling a new client. But then I think you hinted other times there's there's times you get brought in as a, a paid analyzer of what's going on with a potential deal. Kind of could you walk us through those two scenarios? What what is more typical in your mind and what do you see more often? Um, what what should I as a buyer be expecting in terms of how you're going to get paid through through that process? Yeah, I'd say the most typical would be the the non-fee arrangement where your the broker would be stepping in to work with you. And then they would be compensated based on the premiums paid to the carrier. I'd say really 80-20, that's the model you're going to see the majority of the time. Uh, sometimes if there is a significant amount of work being done, it may be fee-based uh, because it's, it's just not within the normal model. You may also see that on the small side if someone's looking for uh, a really technical quantitative review and the premiums may not warrant um, what someone normally would work on. But I would say the majority of the time, people are partnering up with a broker they have that relationship with, and they're collectively working on the assumption that that business closes, it's going to benefit both sides. Totally dig it. Okay, so we're, we, we're working with you. We're looking at a company that we have under LOI. We're getting ready to close. Our, our, we have a path to close. Um, my lawyer's been involved and he's helping negotiate or she's helping negotiate you know, the legal side, I've brought in folks that are helping me with financial due diligence, and you're, you're going to help me with the insurance due diligence of looking at the, at the business. So, you know, tell me, how does that work? Like, what are you going to ask for? Like, what sort of things are you going to do as a consideration? What, what sort of things do I prepare you to both start and then deliver me kind of the answers of, of what we need to know about how to make this business insurable and safe for me? Yeah, the, the beauty of it is is you need to connect us to the seller to figure out who we can request things from. We'll use an M&A checklist that's pre-built out and have a lot of clarity for them to package it together and put it in the data room. Um, once it's there, we're going to go to work, review everything, summarize, and then come back to you as the potential buyer um, to look at what we've found, ask a couple of clarifying questions, and then really have the findings in place. So it, it's pretty easy as the potential buyer where you just need to let your agent or broker go to work, but you need to make that connection for them to get started. Um, once we review, that's really where the context is going to be critical. Um, you know, Something like uh, workers' compensation insurance, let's say you're in the industrial area, the class code is how they rate risk. So it's, it's critical to understand what type of work is being done. So we may look to the buyer and the seller uh, to make sure that's done correctly. Um, and that's just one area where having the wrong code could raise costs or decrease costs over time. Um, but you know, I, I think the biggest thing and the reason why it's so critical to do this is one, risk is in- incredibly complex. And so even if there are the best of intentions, people don't always ins- understand what they're doing in this space. Um, I think the other is that risk is dynamic. And so some people fall into the trap of they've solved for it in the past. And with risk, you can't just do it once and let it slide. So a lot of times you have sellers who have solved for insurance in the past. They want to sell the business and it's up to the next person. 
Well, not reviewing it for three to five years could create a lot of holes that that isn't important to the seller, but is critical to the buyers. They understand what they're buying. Yeah, totally dig it. So um, one of the things I'm curious about, like how does my insurance broker or insurance agent kind of interact? You, you talk about how they interact with the seller. Um, how, how, do they, how do you interact, say, with the legal side of stuff and then also with me, the buyer? Because one of the things I see in buyers a lot of times or the lawyers a lot of times is, you know, there's, there's nobody really sits down and kind of understands all of the issues and quarterbacks the whole thing. Um, and like, you know, they end up just, and, and not to pick on insurance brokers, but like you guys are often motivated by how many policies you can sell. And uh, like, I'm curious, like, okay, well, me as a buyer, like, how do I get up to speed? How do you interact well with my lawyer? Like, how do I make sure all of that just like, stays like coalesced together. And maybe I'm asking two questions at once, but I hope, hopefully hopefully the concern I have is coming across is like twofold. Like how do I keep this from spinning out of control? And then second, like how do I keep you involved with the holistic picture of the deal? Yeah, well, I think one of the most important things in the relationship is trust. And so you need to work with someone that you truly trust, understand, you know, and has credibility in the space. Um, there can be a misincentive in times where the higher the insurance costs, the more the broker uh, gets. But you know, our philosophy is that while that's a short-sighted win, if the business truly grows and performs over time, that's going to lead to a mutual benefit. So you certainly want to make sure you're not working with someone whose hair is slicked back and they're just trying to get every extra dollar they can out of you. But our job as we put this information together and summarize it is to present the options to you. So we're going to give you both sides, but ultimately that's going to be your decision. Uh, Same thing with legal. Uh, We're going to present you with what the options are and what we're seeing, and you can decide if it's worth the fight or if it's even something worth considering. Um, We know how valuable everyone's hours are in our fee base. So the last thing we're trying to do is delay the deal or run up the hours. But, you know, we need to make sure that you as the buyer are informed and have the awareness to make the decisions. And, you know, from you, that's where that's where it goes. Yeah, dig it. So um, super helpful. So one of the things in the the prep work that that you did with us before this episode was kind of talk about, you know, this term of gap analysis, right? Where you're you're going in and you're looking at all the things that are happening in in the particular business to be acquired and then identifying kind of gaps and holes in there. So, you know, I think it'd be super helpful. Kind of go through what are the major areas that you're going to be looking into, cyber, employment, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that like say a noob listener or me could know like, oh, when I hear that, that's, you know, I'm familiar with it. What what are those major categories that you're going to go in and look at a particular business about? Yeah, there's a whole stream there from your property insurance to the various forms of liability that you have. Um, You know, the common one, you know, most people have property in place or they have their general liability. So we're going to review those limits to make sure they're appropriate. But the, the places where we're seeing that people are uncovered often is cyber insurance, um, which has just rocketed in the amount of claims over the last five years. Um, employment liability, and depending on your state, some states are extremely employer friendly, which if you don't have the proper practices in place could leave you exposed. Uh, umbrella policy is another one which people might not be familiar with or might be familiar with it known as excess liability. So people might put that base layer in, but they're not really thinking about the total exposure that they can. So, you know, it's anything from 
the the things you own, such as buildings, cars, equipment, to the liability that you're exposed to, um, to generally risk practices that we may not necessarily solve with an insurance policy, but might be a practice that needs to go into place. Uh, and I, I think the trap that people fall into there is some people just think risk is insurance. You slap a policy against it and you've solved for it. Uh, and we tend to think of risk holistically. And, you know, that's really the proper way to do it. You know, you can, you can always buy a cyber policy, but if your team doesn't have multi-factor authentication in place, you could just be opening up the door to exposure and a hacker coming in there. So you can't just think about the policy. You need to think about how you proactively manage the risk and prevent things from happening in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, let's say I am a business owner and I want, you know, I guess the best way to save money on insurance is don't have any claims. And the best way to not have any claims is to be smarter about it. Like, what are the ways that like I as a business owner can be smarter to minimize claims, right? And then secondarily, like, is there a way I can find out like how many claims the business I'm buying has had? Like, you know, so anyway, two, I, I did it again. I asked you two questions in one. So pick which one you want to answer. <laughs> let's do that one. We'll answer the other one. Let's, let's start at the, with the second because it, it's really easy. So can you find out what losses have occurred? Yes. So any insurance that has been in place, you can request something called a loss run. And that loss run is going to be a summary report of claims that have occurred over each period. So the current agent for the seller will be able to request that from each carrier and package it together. So that loss run analysis is critical to what we do. Um, additionally, if there isn't coverage in place, we'll ask the seller if an uncovered claim has occurred and we'll have them rep if nothing has before. Um, but it's, it's really easy to request the runs where policies are in place and it's really important to ask what's occurred where there aren't policies to cover it. Uh, and then remind me the first part of the question as we're going there. Um, well, the first part, uh, sorry, yeah. The first part of the question is, how do I, as a business owner, or business buyer, run the business in a way that's going to minimize those number of claims, the, minimize the number of times that people are going to go to my insurance company and try to try to recover recover damages or, or funds? Yeah, I think you need to have a, a proactive process in place where you're reviewing your risk, at least annually. And you should have some form of assessment that helps you understand it. Um, you can't lose weight if you don't know how much you weigh. And so that first step is really awareness, looking at the risks and then deciding, you know, what you can work on. And a lot of times when we're partnering with clients, when we put a plan in place, there's things we can accomplish over the next year and things we put aside. Um, because, you know, as a business owner, you know, as much as you want to fix everything at once, if you try to, it's going to go nowhere. So you have to figure out what priorities can you actually action and what do you need to put on that roadmap in the future? Yeah. So what, I mean, just maybe as a dumb question, what is the motivation for me as a business owner to like be, to have fewer claims, right? Like I'm getting lumped in with a pool with like everybody else. Like, why do I care? Um, how, how does that come back to me? And maybe this is all on how it gets priced, right? On a per, per client basis, or how, how does that all get kind of, why, why do I care? Why do I care at all? If I have yeah, claims? that's exactly right. I don't think a lot of people realize that you, you have a credit score within risk. And so your experience matters for the future. So the more claims you have, the more expensive it's going to be to insure those policies. But you know the reverse is also true, where if you're incredibly proactive, you're arming your broker with a story they can get, then go to the carriers with and explain 
why you're a better risk. You know, each, each insurance carrier has underwriting standards and they all have thresholds where they can move the needle. And that can be 20, 30% at times. So if you're coming in just as a blank sheet of paper without a real story or risk management program in place, they're not going to be incentivized to give you a discount. But if you can point to the strategies you put in place, the past experience you have, you're really armed to go to them and fight for discounts as a best-in-class risk. So um, yes, definitely, if you're thinking the policy is just going to keep paying, um, you're in big trouble because ultimately, uh, if carriers see continued repetition without change, they're just not going to insure the policy. Um, and you're going to be left uh, in a place where you know, you're paying could be 10 times what the market average is um, and just losing huge margin relative to the peers. Yeah, super cool. Um, so a couple kind of very niche nuanced questions. Um, you know, there are some industries that general insurance carriers don't cover. For example, like carnivals, right? They don't get covered. You can't insure those through a regular kind of uh, a regular carrier. They're specialty carriers for those. So could you kind of explain maybe a little bit of that for people that are potentially looking at like an oddball business and like how that ends up working? You know, like does a broker like yourself deal with those oddball carriers? Are there specialty captive brokers that only deal with them? Like how does that go down in terms of me looking at a business that's maybe not super mainstream? Yeah, there um it, it might it might not be a mainstream carrier, but there's always a market for it out there. And the most sophisticated would be Lloyd's of London, where there's an open marketplace and syndications that look at you name it, someone's come up with it. So, you know, we love complex risk because that gives us a chance to differentiate and help and really tell someone's story. So I would say if if you're in a market that isn't a traditional cookie cutter risk, your broker is critical because you need to make sure you're accessing those right markets and they're advocating for you in a way that makes sense. Uh, You know, it, it happens all the time to us where we'll talk to a carrier about a specific risk and they say, no, that's not in our appetite. And then we sit down and really walk through exactly with what they do and they can get comfortable with it. So understanding the story and how it comes across is extremely critical, um, say, if you're running a carnival. Uh, the other piece is that, <laughs> you know, as you're running a carnival, uh, the risk management program strategy safety that you have in place really, really matters. People might be willing to write that risk, but only if certain things are in place. So there's just a bigger microscope and it's even more important to look at versus say, um, you know, a software company might be on the other end of that spectrum. Yeah, super cool. So um, just looking back at our prep, one of the things we talked about and you hinted about it was this kind of the rating review. And the the sentence that stuck out, because I think maybe we want to reiterate what you said, you said, it is astonishing how many sellers screw up the rating exposure that they have and how that affects their premiums. So maybe let's just come back to that once again, because nothing else we did in the prep had that much emotional charge in the sentence, the way you described it. Uh, You said, it is astonishing how many sellers screw this up and have under or misstated their policies. So anyway, maybe it may be helpful just like hit on that again, because like part of our goal with this podcast is like, how do we keep people from losing money and making mistakes? And this seems like one that, well, it has to frustrate you a lot when people do this. Yeah, it it can be frustrating. It can also create an opportunity. So usually on the property side, you you don't see it because people understand values. Um, You can still see gaps there. But you know, I I had a recent one where the the seller was reporting um, 
their payroll instead of sales. And so it wasn't intentional, but they misunderstood it. And the insurance tripled after it was corrected. And so that, that's just one example of there was good intent, but it, it created a massive swing in cost and hit to the, the EBITDA calculations that were in place. And so just to back up a little bit, in that case, your general liability, since there's no building in that example tangible to rate it off of, they rate it most times off of your sales. And so that sales number each year is updated to reflect what the exposure is. And in this case, it was completely wrong. But in other cases, they just sign the paper and auto renew year after year after year. And so if the business has grown, uh, it it might not be obvious, but the, the cost could be twice as much. And if you continue to report it incorrectly, that's insurance fraud and, and you're at risk. So um, that, that's oftentimes the biggest hit that we see. Uh, even if there's no intent to deceive, things can get really out of whack because people aren't reviewing every year and the risk changes. Yeah, dig it. So you just talked about this topic of insurance fraud. I know about bank fraud. I know about mortgage fraud. I know about general fraud. Like maybe real fast, like what's special about insurance fraud? Like what 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 is it? I mean, I, I know what fraud is, but maybe the audience doesn't know what it is. But so like what what is that what is that kind of explain explain to us what the risk you have if if somebody is intentionally or even unintentionally committing insurance fraud? Yeah, the one, it's illegal. Um, so you, you've always got that risk. But uh, two, if 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 you're caught, then the uh, the carrier has has the right to retroactively go back and recoup the premium that should have been in place. So you know, let's say that you're paying fifty thousand less a year. That could hit you on the current year and in past years. So there there could be two hundred thousand dollars worth of out of pocket that comes up. Um, so first and foremost, it's illegal. Second, it could be a massive financial hit to you um, if it occurs. Yeah, and are they? Um, is there also a risk they might not pay out? Like if I if I have a claim on my insurance policy and they dig in and understood I've been mis- misrepresenting or some of that stuff, is is there a liability that I might not actually get paid if I make a claim against insurance that I've been paying for? Uh, there is. And oftentimes there's language in place that talks about coinsurance. And that just means they'll only pay relative to what you've put into it. So if you misrepresented and you're only paying, say, 20% of your exposure, they may cap what they'll pay. So you could still mm-hmm. receive payment, but there's protections in place to make sure if this does occur that they're not on the hook to the full extent that it, uh, the fraud was committed. Yeah, dig it. Um, so I think one of the other things I wanted to achieve today, I wanted to scare people a little bit. <laughs> you talked about this this uh, this thing where the seller was potentially committing unintentional fraud uh, through negligence on their on their reported revenue by reporting their payroll only. Um, what what kind of other things have you seen where people have made big dollar mistakes by mishandling how they're doing insurance? Yeah, uh, another one is on workers' compensation, like I was saying with those class codes. And so when you're classified into a category, if there's two that it's in between, if you do anything in the riskier one, you're 100% in that class code. And so one of the things that we see is people will split job responsibilities and say they do this risky activity, but it's only 25% of the time and the rest, their clerical hmm. say at their desk 
well, that's just not how it works. And so they would be 100% in that riskier code. And so that, if you had been reporting it wrong, you know, could be three, seven, 10 times increase in cost per employee. Um, so that's a big one that we see. Uh, another side is employee benefits, which I don't think it's looked at as much either. Um, just in terms of benchmarking the plan, the the richness available, or the strategies that have been put in place. Um, sometimes you'll see that people will allow spouses and families to be on the plan for protection. But one thing that catches people is they make their plan so attractive that oftentimes spouses, even if they have an employee benefits plan at their company, join the other plan because it's that much better. And so what they end up doing is instead of providing a benefit where it's needed, they're actually pulling in much more people on top of it and adding costs where it's not necessarily um, needed. And so it's little things that can hit across the board and it really depends on the the industry or the type of business. Um, but it can it can hit from all angles. I would say another piece is deductibles. Uh, oftentimes that gets overlooked. But you know, if you've got a, a five million dollar building and the deductibles say ten thousand um, dollars versus a hundred thousand dollars, that can make a significant difference in price. And so sometimes people aren't looking at all the little details that can move the levers. Um, because again, you know, if if you've got five thousand of shrub damage, you might be willing to pay that. But if the whole building burns down, you know, that's what it truly is for. And so if you can save $1,000 a year on your policy, you're going to self-insure that shrub if nothing happens over a period of time. So um, it's, it's not a great answer because it, it's, it really depends and it can hit on all sides, which just goes back to the importance of you know, looking at your risk and having someone there as a partner. Yeah. And so digging a little bit into what you kind of hinted about earlier, you know, the employee benefits and health insurance and stuff like that. Is, is that something you all do in addition to kind of the more classical risk stuff? So you're selling both of those types of policies. And is that common? You know, do you have one one that's very kind of risk property casualty centric and then you're getting health insurance through somebody else? Like how, how does the universe of kind of folks in your business do that? Or is your business unusual that you do both of those? How, how does that all work? Yeah, you see a mix out there. Some will specialize in just that property and casualty or commercial line side of it, and others will be just employee benefits. Um, so we we are a little unique that our advisors do both sides. Um, but for us, as we try and take a step back and really say, okay, strategically, how do we review this and look at it annually? We, we think we'd be doing a mm-hmm. disservice if we just did one side of it. Uh, and you can't fully understand the impact if you're, you know, siloed in one is our thought. So um, you do see some focusing on one and you do see some doing both, but we we definitely play on both sides. And that just helps us really um, overall assess the risk and work with people, you know, on their on their one year, but also more of their strategic plan three to five years in the future. Yeah, totally dig it. Well, cool. Well, I think you know, the last thing I really want to hit on is just understanding, let's say I'm a buyer. Um, and besides calling calling you because you seem really smart, <laughs> and, and, and like, how do I go about picking a broker? Like, how do I how do I figure out who the right if if I'm new to this? How do I go about figuring out who the right insurance broker is going to be for me? What what are the what advice do you have for people to do that to go run a search and find the right partner? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I would love to, to work with everyone, but, you know, there's a lot of good people out there doing good things. And so I think some of the qualities that we talked about, find someone that's credible, find someone that you can trust, and find someone that you're aligned on their philosophy or approach. Um, you know, for us, we, we talk about it's critical to be proactive, uh, do an annual assessment, really be looking at things against the vision in the future. That's a lot of work that can have a lot of dividends, but might necessarily align with everyone. You know, if somebody just wants to renew every year and not think about it, they should work with someone on that side. But um, I would say start, start with people that you know and trust and could provide referrals. Uh, and then talk to the brokers, find out how they work, what their process is, and if it lines up with what you're looking for. Yeah, so maybe maybe next we can click into specifics, like how important is it that you're in the same city or same state as me as a buyer or for the target company? Like, is that important? Um, so may, maybe start there. Like, how should I think about geography relative to the broker I would work with? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's it's important that your broker can access markets in the area that you are. And so, you know, you've got the the gigantic publicly traded brokers out there that are in every state um but as a small company they might not they might not give you any attention so it, it really depends if there's access we're we're in new york state and that's really the roots of where we are but we do business all across the country and so we have the ability to go everywhere so it's i wouldn't say it's critical to have feet on the ground i, I think the other change recently and you know this ties in with covid but there used to be a, a lot of relationships where people needed to look someone in the eye in order to be their partner. And now we're seeing those, those walls and those barriers are kind of broken down as people do a lot, a lot of things more virtually. So um, state, regional can be very important, but I wouldn't rule someone out just because of the, the radius that they are. I'd say the other thing is that you're, you're starting to see a lot more people uh, specialize. And as you talk about sophisticated risks, uh, that can be very important. So, you know, let's let's say you're in the waste management business. If there's a, a big broker that specializes in waste management and has national expertise um, in New York, but you're in Nevada, they might be better than your next door neighbor who's just a generalist. So it's it's really important to discuss that fit. And um, if it lines up that they have the markets and they have the ability to help you with what you need. Super cool. So, well, I mean, I think it's good for your business that the Zoomification of of work is helping y'all's geography spread a lot more. Um, so, kind of second question, like, how does size start to play into choosing a broker? Do I need a broker that's done my type of is very experienced in my size of deal? Say it's a ten million dollar enterprise value deal. That's obviously very different than say a fifty or a hundred million dollar one, and very different than a, a million dollar purchase of a business. How does size play into who I should look for in a partner here? Yeah, I, I think the the larger something is, the more there's an ability to differentiate. And so when you when you talk about deals that are under 10 million in revenue, let's say, it can be heavily commoditized. So it, it might not take as work and a lot more people can do as good of a job there. But once you talk about getting over 50, 100, 1,000 employees, it gets very sophisticated on the benefits side. And similarly, on the property and casualty, as you get above 10, 20, 30 million, it gets more sophisticated. Um, and then again, the operations. So we, we do a lot with manufacturing. A $30 million manufacturing company is very different than the software company we use, for example. Um, but I would say 
certainly as you get over 50 employees and $10 million, it, it really starts to matter who you're working with. Um, and there's plenty of people that play in those different lanes. So some people do small business all day. It's their passion. It's their bread and butter. Um, and others really love digging into that complexity of helping people as they grow and hit that size. Yeah, dig it. So one thing I do have experience with is just, you know, reps and warranties insurance. So that's where the either the buyer or the seller pays for a policy that has a limit on what it can pay out if something represented by the seller turns out to not be actually true. Um, and I think there's been talk I've seen on Twitter where people are like, yeah, I want to get reps and warranties insurance or RWI for these little tiny deals. And I'm like, eh, I don't think you want to do that. <laughs> and by tiny, I mean like a 500000 or a million dollar deal for a company to be bought. So like, uh, A, did I describe RWI insurance correctly? So please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and then B, like, where does that that start to show up in deal sizes? Does it show up at 20 million, 50 million, like in terms of the size of size of the deal? Yeah, tr- traditionally, people have always been nervous that as they do deals, there's things that are going to come up that were unexpected. So they wanted to hold back money in escrow. And traditionally, the only way that you could do that was with cash. And that made people feel very safe. But for the seller, you know, there's a lot of anxiety that things are going to get held up or they don't have that money that they've worked so hard for. And so reps and warranty insurance really stepped in to say, we will ensure that cash holdback because it's going to get the seller their money that they're, they've worked so hard for and desperately need. And it's going to allow the buyer to move on. And so typically, we'll see reps and warranty insurance come into play on deals that are 50 million and up. Um, and deductibles might be 250,000 on that deal. So when you're thinking of the, the deals sub 50 million, uh, one, the carriers don't like to play in it. Two, there can be minimum premium. And three, there can be huge deductibles relative to the size. So most times we'll just see the, the seller notes and the escrow holdbacks on those sub $50 million deals. And then as we get 50 and above, some people still prefer cash and some like to do the reps and warranties as we discussed, because for a buyer, it could be a sweetener in the deal. And um, sometimes for both parties, it's just more attractive. Yeah, dig it. Well, and then the other part, they, you know, the thing we didn't talk about with RWI insurance uh, you have to pay the for that type of insurance. You have to pay them to underwrite you because they have to do they have to do a bunch of work. So you might spend fifty grand in money that you'll never get back, even if the deal doesn't close, to have RWI insurance in place. So um, you know, until I started getting involved in much bigger stuff, I didn't even know it existed because it's just it doesn't make any sense to spend that kind of money. You know, when you're when you're doing something on the smaller side. Yeah, definitely. You're um, you're taking on more diligence as you pull in reps and warrants. So. Um, you got to be ready for that um, because they're if they need to get comfortable and put that much money up, they're going to dive in and look at the books. So it, it, it's it's another party and another microscope. But you know the idea of moving a hundred million dollars that could otherwise be frozen for years uh, is really attractive for people. And again, just in terms of scale and some of the bigger things that you've looked at, that's where it starts to come in play. Versus the smaller ones, it's just holding something up where the economics might not make sense. Yeah, dig it. Well, and um, so 
any advice for buyers that we haven't really covered? I know you've given a lot of wisdom here about things that somebody buying a business should look out for. Anything that we didn't really talk about or anything I, I didn't ask questions about out of, well, probably out of ignorance, but <laughs> anything anything that comes to mind we needed to make sure people know? No, you know, I, I think we've joked about scaring people, but this isn't, this isn't a fear podcast. It's supposed to help everyone learn, put best practices in place and get an edge. And so, you know, a lot of times this, this really doesn't have to be that complicated. The important piece is that you're proactively looking at it and coming back to it yearly. So if you're a first time buyer, get a good partner, make sure you request the information. But once you have your company, you know, don't be that bad example of the seller that just closes their eyes and signs the paper every year. Put, put in the work, even if it's one to two hours a year to make sure you're staying on top of it. And it, it can really be that simple sometimes. Um, you know, if you're if you're doing carnivals, please <laughs> please give me or somebody else a call because you do not fit into that category. Um, but please don't come away from this overwhelmed. Just understand that how important it is to do the little things up front so you don't get burned on the back end. Yeah, I think that's a that's great advice. By the way, just full disclosure, you know, as a CEO multiple times and business owner, like there's two things I have hated more than anything. One is accounting. Uh, and accounting processes. Number two was dealing with insurance, and like I just hated it. <laughs> like it just felt like there was nothing. There was nothing rewarding to me about the whole process. And you know, it's so inspiring to talk to you today and be like, ah, oh, like he is so pleasant. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Like, like I think that's a genius thing to do in the insurance business is just be likable and somebody that you want to spend time with because the content is just horrid. Like I can't, I can't take it. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for making insurance exciting for me. And yeah, uh, you're, you're not alone at all. You know, a lot of people feel like (laughs) it's something they have to do. They have no control over it and it's because they just react to it. But you know, the other piece and the reason I wanted to come back is because we, we consider ourselves a far from ordinary approach to risk. We've we're voted the number one company to work for in New York state. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. We nerd out insurance, but we also have a a lot of fun, a lot of great people. And, you know, ultimately we love what we do because we're helping protect people. So um, <laughs> if, if you hate insurance and who you're working with, we're, we're happy to help and flip things around. Well, I think I, I think what you're saying is really cool. You know, me and, and one of the CEOs that, that I work with at one of our companies, like we talk about the difference between being a, an actual partner and being a vendor. And he loves to work with, folks like yourself that have this idea that I'm going to be a partner for the company that I'm working with for for the clients as opposed to be a vendor right the vendor takes your PO maximizes income and then moves on and uh, you know I think I think you can hear that in your attitude and the way you do stuff that's pretty inspiring it's like oh like we'll we'll forego short-term premiums or commissions for ourselves uh, in order to do what's best for the client and the people working in the company and uh, I think that's super cool I'm glad you guys do, and it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I appreciate that. And you know, listen, the more people that we can help, the better. I'm I'm fourth generation, but I still consider myself an entrepreneur. And I think this the whole audience here is entrepreneurs. So if we can help people earn an edge or get a little bit, um, you know, happy to do it. Yeah, dig it. Well, um, so in closing, you've helped a lot for me. To uh, we talked about those ways, but also you've helped the audience a good bit. Um, how could people connect with you, follow along in your journey, be helpful to you? Yeah, um, they can feel free to, to look at us online at gkgrisk.com. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. We can link that to the episode. And we've got our social media profiles as well. Um, you know, We truly are at our best when we can differentiate. 
And a lot of times that can mean working at scale. So if you're a company that's in complex risk or is over that 10 million, 50 employee size, and you think there's opportunity, um, that's where we have a blast and would love to partner up. Yeah, totally dig it. Yeah, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. I do think on your Twitter, you might want to calm down. Uh, you appear to be tweeting twice per <laughs> month. That's really maybe too much. Uh, <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> Actually, you know, I... <laughs> I I love Twitter oh, and I love the SMB ETA space because I think there has been incredible peer sharing and, you know, people have talked about cool behavioral tests like Colby or different things we can learn from. But it, it also turns into just an engagement booster, give me followers, help me monetize. And that just goes against my core. And so um, if I'm helping someone through Twitter, it's always in the DMs. I don't, I don't want credit or more promotion. I just want to help somebody get the answer. Yeah. I love how your pinned tweet is solemnly swear to never post the thread. I was like, ah, that's a good, <laughs> good man. <laughs> Taking a stand. I mean it. <laughs> Uh, well, as somebody writing two threads per week, uh, yeah, I'm insulted. <laughs> no, but um, you know, you're genuinely giving people value. You're one of the fun ones out there, and you know, you can do it. And also mention chilies and give a big laugh. And so, um, to all those people out there that are truly helping, giving back, like, thanks for being the reason that I'm still engaged on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, it's a good time. It's a good time. Though, you know, I'm 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 about to break ninety-eight thousand followers, which is a vanity metric. It doesn't mean anything because the algorithm doesn't really care how many followers you have. Um and it cares how much people engage with what you're doing. But uh it does seem like the higher the number gets, the more number of kind of just bizarre replies I get on stuff. And it's just like, okay, well, <laughs> I guess I I guess I deserve this. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's hope we get you over that hundred before Elon gets some of those bots out there. We don't need to see you uh, tanking back down towards ninety. I do. I I have seen that. Like I'm in a group chat with some other people that are working hard on their follower counts and stuff like that. And like somebody will come in every month or two and be like, "Hey, I just lost four hundred followers. What happened?" And you know, and and the, it'll be a purge. You know, they'll be going through and kind of reducing all the fake accounts. Um, so anyway, I, I try not to watch it. It's like watching the stock market. Don't do it. Yeah. You'll be happier. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. This is awesome. Thanks so much. Um, we'll have all your contact information in the show notes and stuff. And you know, really appreciate you coming on board today and sharing sharing your wisdom. And you know, as I said before, making insurance sexy for me like that's a heroic effort. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> 